This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Melina Marquetta, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. Um, I should say welcome back to Better Reading because we've had you here before. In unusual circumstances this time, we are actually recording via Zoom and you're in your home and I'm in mine. But let me introduce you. Melina, for those that don't know, is an Australian writer and teacher. Melina is best known as the author of um, Looking for Alibrandi, Saving Francesca on the Jellico Road. She has got a more recent book than that too. What was that? Based on Dalhousie last year. Yes, that's right. Uh, Published to great acclaim as well. And uh, she has twice been awarded the CBCA Children's Book of the Year Award for Older Readers and Jellico Road won the 2009 Michael L. Prince Award for the American Library Association. And today we're talking about, I guess it's a children's book, but a, a, a different genre for you. And the book is called What Zola Did on Monday. Now, is this a new age group for you? Oh, it's a completely different <laughs> age group for me. And the hardest, I might say, like the hardest. It's, it's interesting what you fall back on as a writer and all of a sudden I have to write in a different way and, you know, regardless of genre, I don't have to write in a different way, you know, as an adult or young adult writer but as a, you know, children's writer you definitely have to be aware of every single word you put on the page. Now talk to me about why and how. So why did you decide to write this? Look, I, um, I hate being one of those people who say it wasn't until I had a child, but I, ha- I have a reluctant reader. I have a reluctant learner, um, you know, for a child. She's eight years old. And I just found that not that you ever transition away from picture books, but as much as we could stick to reading picture books forever, one of the important things, of course, for young readers is they have to get used to a whole lot of words on a page without images. And I just found that that um, step into chapter books was incredibly difficult for her and for me. And I just, you know, just finding something that would suit her. I felt that there were so many for stronger readers, but I didn't feel as if there was enough for reluctant readers. And I just probably, um, you know, my my editor who was editing Dalhousie at the time was saying to me, you know, I, I... I reread one of your younger books and I just loved the way you write and would you ever consider writing for a younger audience? And I was like, no, no, no. And we always muck around and say, you know, six months later, you know, I had a couple of books in this series written. So I think I just needed to be pushed and both my editor and my child, I think, pushed me in that direction. Mm. They're interesting little books. So they are for reluctant readers. So what's the age group? Would it be six plus? I always say... um, a strong six-year-old or a strong five-year-old yeah. um, and a weaker 
eight-year-old. So anywhere between, you know, five to eight, depending on where you are. I think it's perfect for year one or grade one, and they're usually around six um, and grade two. Um, But, yeah, it could be anywhere between that because you do come across kids who are in kindergarten who are incredibly strong readers and you still come across um, kids in year three who are still struggling. I know that for my daughter, who is a struggling reader, but at this point, Zoc, she's probably outgrowing Zola a bit, but it's still something that she can engage with because of the storyline. Yeah. Talk to me about diversity and children's books because, I mean, this is... Um it's beautiful and it's got these lovely little illustrations by Deb Hudson, but they're actually children for me that are familiar to me, children that I would see when I pick up my great nephew from the schoolyard. But that's not often what you see in children's literature, is it? You know, it, it was interesting that I, that was one of my issues about that age group. Beautiful books, uh, you know, there's no denying um, the beauty in books, you know, the early chapter readers but I did find there to be a lack of diversity and, you know, that's my thing. <laughs> I just can't resist um, wanting to discuss the fact or the, the question of why isn't there a lot more um, in especially books for younger readers and not for kids of, you know, different backgrounds. It's more for any kid to be taught at that very young age that there is diversity in their communities. And I, what I tried to do was not write about an issue. Um, it was more about these kids exist, they live next door, they live, you know, in Zola's house, and that's the reality of our lives anyway. That's the reality of the area I live in. So it was so important for me to be able to um, capture that. Yeah. Well, I think you can't not live anywhere in Australia and not have diversity in your life. It is there whether you choose to look at it or notice it or not. But what I like about uh, Zola is it's just simply what Zola did on Monday. Really, it's just a story, right? It is. It's it's not a story about diversity. It's a story with diversity in it. It's, and it's exactly what I wanted to do. In actually all the things that come up with it, you know, in the stories, I did not want someone to feel as if I was teaching their children in a dominant way about diversity or even about grief. There's, there's a line in it saying that they miss their nonno, but I don't go into what happened to him or anything. That's a discussion meant for a child and their parent. So it was just always making sure that it was all there and it was open for discussion. And, you know, it's not even about, it, you know, I suppose it can be about wanting a child to identify with themselves when they're reading. And I think I always tell that story of being an avid reader as a teenager, but never, ever, ever, ever seeing my life, you know, in the pages of those books. And when that happens, I think it takes something away from a child. It makes them seem as if they're less important But then I have to jump to a child who always sees themselves represented in a book and I want them to know that the children I write about aren't the secondary characters. They're as important as everyone else. And I think that, okay, let's call it subliminal, but that sort of um, messaging I think is really important so that we don't have this idea of whose story is more important in this country. Do you know, and this might have happened to you, but when I was little growing up, and, you know, as you know, I'm a Lebanese background, um, 
and I grew up uh, with really, I mean, the love of books and the love of reading and really not noticing um, for a long time until I read Looking for Alibrandi, of course, and then, I, you know, Christos Chalkos, not really having, um, uh, not being worried about not being represented. However, when I read Looking for Alibrandi, I just saw myself in it. I could identify. I could, it, it was life-changing for me. But one of the things that I remembered, and I remember this morning when I was thinking about what I was going to talk to you about, and you might remember this. Now, it seems trivial, but it actually, you know, 30, 40 years later, I'm still remembering it. Do you know when you go into some shops and they have like bowls with kids' names on it or they have fridge magnets with kids' names on it? right? And they have pink ones and they have blue ones. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. It never, ever had my name. They were always, particularly when we were young in primary school, they were, you know, like, you know, um, whatever the common um, Anglo names, if you like. And I never saw any name in there that, you know, that I, of a person that I knew. And for years, I looked out for that to try and find my name on that list or in that collection. Did you ever notice that? Always. Oh, I still notice it because my child's name is never there. And I I think I had to go to the States to be able to buy my daughter something to put on her door. And hers isn't really an uncommon name. Um, Always. I've never found anything with my name. And I always muck around and this shows my age and I'm sure you'll remember as well. But do you remember Romper Room? You know, they yes. pulled yes. my name out of the magic mirror. Like, you know, I remember <laughs> I'd wait until the end and they'd call out everyone's name and I'd be waiting for them to call out my name. And I think that has stuck with me that, you know, it, it, you know in a way it makes you feel as if you're not important. And I, I'm still waiting, you know, to yeah. uh, have my name called out. So, um, and they, they are things of humour now, but back then you just yearn to... Um, to be part of something and there was so much that said you weren't part of the world and I think it's why I wrote my first novel. Um, So for me this is a massive step forward of saying, okay, now this is a reality of our lives but I want there to be a presence, you know, in the pages of young books. Um, Because even though, like for me, if you would ask me, I would have said, no, no, you know, I was great. I grew up reading. I, you know, I didn't really notice any of that. But the fact that that memory is still there and still haunts me. It doesn't stop you from reading. It doesn't stop you from reading at all. But um, you you know that something's missing when you do come across that book and think, oh, my gosh, this is Mm. my life. So Mm. Now, uh, and I know you and I have spoken about this, but for those of that are listening, tell me how you came to write Looking for Alibrandi because I think that's interesting in terms of where you came from to write that book to where you came from to write what Zola did on Monday. Talk to me about that first. Well, once again, I, I was just an avid reader. I struggled as a child as well, and that's why I can relate to, you know, what my daughter is feeling or not feeling. But I loved reading. It was just I found so much solace in, in reading. But once again, I, I never saw traces of myself. And I remember I started writing about this young girl who, you know, lived in a coastal town and she didn't live with her. Um, she was a, Her mum was a single parent and didn't realise that I didn't know that world well enough. And I was always told that if um, if I went to Italy that I would really understand who I was. And when I was 19, I went to Italy and I was probably even more confused. But I remember my great aunts telling me stories about when 
my grandparents and my father had left and, and the grief they felt. And I came back from that trip and that's when I really thought, I'm going to write, I'm not going to write about a girl from a coastal town, I'm going to write about a girl from, you know, the inner west of Sydney and, and discovering something about the past which was going to really help her discover something about herself. And, and that, that novel, as much as it's, you know, I feel as if I talk about it to um, death, it really helped me work out where I fit in this country. And, uh, you know, it stopped. I think I had an issue about where I felt I was in this country, whereas from the moment I wrote that book, I, it's almost like I got it. I think it's the last line of the novel is, finally she understood what I understood and I think I understood where I belong. Um, so it was and really- so many, many, many other readers felt the same way. It was yeah. a book for them. And I like the fact that it wasn't just culturally, um, you know, people come into this novel on so many different levels and it's not just a cultural one. You know, identity is so massive in this country and, you know, there's that, that, that need to understand where you belong. And I always love writing about someone being independent but still belonging to a community. And that hasn't changed with, you know, Zola. I mean, she's mm. an independent little thing but she belongs to something so powerful and that is the community of her household and her neighbourhood and her school and, and, you know, at that age, that's, that consumes you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So tell me, we're both in isolation. Um, and we were talking about this just before we started recording. And I was speaking to Peter Carey this morning via New York. And we were talking about, like he and I were similar in this, that we haven't been able to initially, I'm, I'm, I've kind of passed that point then, but I couldn't read for the first couple of weeks with all the news about the coronavirus and the impact that that could have. And I don't know whether for me that it was grief or distraction or I just couldn't get my head into a book and it was really upsetting me. So I, I finally just got, you know, went to short stories. I pulled off uh, Raymond Carver off the shelf and that really did it for me. But how's it been for you? I mean, you've been isolated, but you've also got a young child there. Do you think that that kind of the grief hit you in a way that affected your reading? The exact opposite to you. I um, I have worried for so long about my reading. Um, I find it really difficult to write and read at the same time, and I've I've really felt that I've you know written you know back to back for years and years and years. So I went into this crazy isolation. Um, and I think it started with my daughter started sleeping with me again, which, you know, so we're lying in bed at night 
And I just started reading again and then turned into this kind of, it, it reminded me of my childhood that I couldn't get enough. I was, you know, I was ordering books. I was thinking, oh, my God, just say I finished this book and I won't have another book to read, although I've got a household full of books, by the way. But yeah. um, so, you know, I... It, what took me sometimes ages to read, I just, I would, and I only read in bed. I only read in bed at night and in the morning sometimes, but it made me realise that the reason I read in bed, it's all about, it's just all about solace and it's just about the enjoyment of it again. And I think that in bed at night is the only time I can truly relax, especially having, you know, an eight-year-old and the horror of homeschooling, you know, in my life. <laughs> So, that's, a, that's an entirely different podcast. An entirely. <laughs> I don't even think I can write about it one day because it's been um, so awful. But I just went back to books and I didn't even have a particular type of book. I just, you know, I read the way I write. I'm so, like, I cross genres. And, you know, I've even said to myself, I have to go and search for those books that I haven't been able to get through in the past because if I'm not going to read them now, I never will. Um, but, yeah, I've just gone back to that pleasure of reading. And the sol- I think it goes back to the solace. You know, it relaxes me. It just takes me into another world. And I'm not saying that TV series haven't done that, but, you know, I get focused on, you know, particular things. And once I've watched that, I think, no, nah, I'm just going to uh, read. So, um, yeah. It's a different kind of concentration and a different kind of escapism, I think, reading. I mean, I, I love watching, you know, various, I mean, I often binge on Netflix, but it's different. Um, I, I want to talk I about. I more. I just think I yeah. felt that I loved film and television more. And then I realised that reading is my first love. It, the fact that I can't read during periods of my life isn't the fact that I don't like reading or I don't want to read again. And that's one thing I say to people all the time who say to me, I haven't been able to read for a while or I haven't been able to read for years. It comes back to you. Once you're back into that groove, you're just addicted again. And and I love that feeling. Talk to me about finding, like, I think there's been lots of negatives with isolation. I mean, I've really struggled. I've really missed the human contact and the human interaction and the human cues and whatever but there is something that I have enjoyed and that's staying local and community like you know I I like I know that you have that in your community but I also have it too you know I'm next door next door to a park as you know and so one thing I, I was doing every day was walking my dog in the morning and in the evening but really only interacting with those people around me and do you know that gave me great comfort Oh, definitely. Like we, there's so many, I mean, there's the, the horror of isolation is knowing, you know, what people are going through elsewhere, um, yeah. both on a health scale, but also on a loneliness one. And that's why I just can't complain. How, I mean, the worst thing I can complain about is homeschooling, but mm. everything else, we just live in, we live in a neighbourhood like Zola's. Um, we, it's big enough to be able to go for a walk and be able to speak to people without being too close to them. But, you know, my, my daughter said to me the other day, how come you say hello to everyone we go past? And in the past, I haven't done that because I'm trying to teach her, you know, we're not friends with everyone we go past and the whole thing. Whereas all of a sudden, every single person in my neighbourhood, whether I know them or not, now has become, I don't know them, but I say hello to them and they say hello to me. So it has done a lot, I think, for community living and it's just, it has been one of the surprises of it because I thought I'd find this a whole lot harder 
than I actually have. And do you know the connection between you and those people that you don't know is that you now all have something in common? You're Mm -hmm. both experiencing the same thing. Yeah, it's just different ways of dealing with anxiety and loneliness. I mean, for me, it is going for that walk. Um, I even found myself ordering for both, you know, my daughter and I, Parkers, you know, because I think (laughs) winter comes, we're still going out there because it has cleared my head. Um, And it's taken away a bit of the anxiety because, you know, of course, your anxiety now isn't as bad as it was, you know, six weeks ago. But I remember you know, to the point that I was losing weight and I was thinking, oh, great, everyone's saying they're putting on weight and I'm losing it. And, of course, I've put it on now because I actually watch you on Instagram and think I need to make some bread, I need to make this. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was just very anxious at the beginning and it was the reading, it was the walking, it was the writing, my own writing that was just getting through. And routine, routine is everything. And we stuck to a routine and I think, you know, we've come out of it quite sane. Yeah, I think we have. I think we, you know, not to speak too soon, but it does feel as though we're coming out of it gradually and, you know, um, intact. Do you think it will change the way we tell stories in the future? Um, we, we speak about this often because I've been doing a lot of um, any work that I've done has been TV work or, you know, film work where you're having Zoom writing conferences for a week, which actually works. And the one thing that comes out of that is we believe that the stories will be smaller but still about the big issues because I think for me it's not going to be about, you know, people writing about, you know, a pandemic or, um, you know, that sort of drama because we know how that ends. I'm not interested. I know that I will not be interested in one story about that but I will be interested on the impact that, being confined with people, being part of a community, being forced onto each other. I think a lot of stories about that. You know, it's like that age-old, you know, every year you get the Thanksgiving American story of the family having to be forced back together for that day. And I always find them enjoyable because it is about people who don't want to be together forced back in to a space. But I think that you find out things about each other after all these years that you haven't really realised. And I think that those sort of stories, they're, they're the ones that are going to interest me, I'd say. Mm. And are you writing anything for older, any YA or any adult? No, no, because my focus at the moment is, um, you know, I was silly enough to when, you know, I did start this series, I wish I had said what Zola did on the weekend, but when <laughs> you choose what Zola did on Monday, you realise that you have to write seven books. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm more than halfway through those, but a lot of my focus has been um, writing. You know, we, we received Screen Australia money to develop Dalhousie into a series. So I've been focused on writing the first episode, which is going to be then taken to networks and, you know, we're going to try to sell them to networks. Um, the same thing's happening with Jellico. There's always been interest with Jellico, so we're putting together a first episode of that and same with um, Saving Francesca with the film script. So that's been the focus of my writing. And, of course, everyone says this is the time for people to be writing because they really feel that once, you know, when we see the light, um, the, the industry is going to be interested in these smaller stories. Who knows when we're going to be able to travel overseas? So, you know, even overseas companies are more interested in, you know, keeping stories local so that they're doable. So I think you just find a different way of telling a story. Mm. Um, 
and yeah, so I don't feel as if I've changed much about what I write. It's still about community. It's still about identity. Yeah, and and, and it's going to be an interesting time. I think interesting time in, in books and film. And yeah, movies. like even, you know, I handed in a Zola. Um, I, I handed in the what Zola did on Thursday a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, as much as those books have elderly people in them because she lives with her nonna and, you know, there's a focus on that, but I just found that that has that book, the Thursday book in particular, because of what's happening to the elderly and our fear for them, I felt that, you know, it wasn't about anything like that, but I felt that, you know, that character was the focus of it. So you can't keep, I've never been able to keep what's happening um, in the world outside of my work. I just have to find a way of doing it without seeming as if I'm, you know, teaching someone a lesson or, um, you know, hitting them on the head with the idea. Well, Melina, um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I always enjoy it and no doubt we'll catch up. It feels like normalcy. I just want to feel normal. So this feels very normal. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Take care. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.